continuing their studies in the Old Testament, we're going to be turning back to the Gospel of Matthew, where we've been walking through a study on the Sermon on the Mount. So you can turn your Bibles to chapter 5 of Matthew. Verse 17, what we're going to go through today is a very special passage. In fact, I need to ask you, are you awake? Uh, Because this is a, there's a lot in this passage. I'm going to really try not to uh, spend too much time in this passage. But there's a lot to unpack, so so I just need need to make sure you're awake. I need your brains alert. So let's start just real quickly with a little quiz, okay? I'm going to ask a question, see if you can answer this. Are you ready? Okay. The topic today is autobiographies, okay? Who is the main character of the following books? Maybe not all autobiographies, it's books. Who's the main character of the following books? I am Zlatan. Anybody? All right. You guys are sharp this morning. Good. All right. That was easy. Next one. Who is the main character of the following book? The story of my life. Helen Keller. Oh, I can't slip anything by you guys this morning. I heard it. Helen Keller. Great. All right. We are mentally ready for today, I think. Okay, last question. Who is the main character of the following book? The Old Testament. God. God is right. In Sunday school... For the kids, the answer to the question, if you don't know the answer, is always Jesus, right? And in this case, that is the right answer. Yes, the Old Testament is about God, but we're going to see in our text today that the Old Testament is actually about the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, John Jesus said in John's Gospel, chapter 5, verse 39, he's telling, talking to the Jews, and he says, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. But it is the scriptures that witness, that testify and bear witness about me. You see, the, the nation of Israel had turned God's word into a rule book. Instead of worshiping God, they became religious. Are you religious? Religious. Religion. To be religious has a great focus on the outside. You know, all religions have kind of the same general common denominator. And that basically is this. Do. Do 
Do this or that or these things and, and you will get to heaven. Or, or you'll be enlightened. You'll ascend. You'll reach moksha. But the Bible, that's not the message of the Bible. You see, the great word of the Bible is not do. The word of scriptures is done. The Bible teaches us that we can never do. The emphasis of God's word is done. It is based on the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross. And it's left up to us, to me, and to you to either believe this or to reject this. We're continuing our time, like I said, in the Sermon on the Mount. And today's text, it's a shift in Jesus' words. We've gone through verses 1 through 16 already. In fact, where we left off, I know it was a month ago. It was before Christmas. It was a while ago. Jesus said to the people, he said, you are the light of the earth. You are the, you're the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. What Jesus is saying there, he's saying, if, if you live empowered by the Holy Spirit, not, not in your own strength, not in your own righteousness, these bad beatitudes, they will describe you. You see, doing the beatitudes, doing these things, they will not and they cannot save you. Let me repeat that so this is very clear. Doing the Beatitudes, living out the Beatitudes, will not and cannot save you. Why? Why? Because we can't do them. We cannot do these things in our own strength. Friends, you cannot and you will not be poor in spirit without the Spirit of God aside from the grace of God in our lives. On our own, I could never be pure in heart. My heart, your heart is too stained, it's too defiled. Our hearts are anything but pure. See, the Beatitudes are not how to believe. They are the fruit of those who believe. It, there's a progression. It starts with conviction and then repentance, and then the fruit of repentance. You see, we need God's strength. We go to him, and it's by his spirit that we can do this. If we live by his grace, empowered by his spirit, then verses 13 and 16, they will describe us. And in, in doing so, we will be the light of the earth the light of the world, the salt of the earth. But verse 17, now the, the, the text shifts. And what Jesus says here, you know, I cannot even begin to uncover these words. But first and foremost in these words, he tells us explicitly at least one of the reasons he came. Before we look at that text, though, could we bow and pray one more time? Our Father in God, this is your word. May we sit here today as those disciples sat so many years ago, actually stood and listened to you speak. 
God, we ask for ears to hear. Oh God, not just for our head, but God, ears to hear and believe. A belief that would transform us into the people that you've created us to be. God, we look to you. We pray that you'd be glorified. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 5, continuing at verse 17. Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth passes away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, here's our text in four words, if you'd like an outline. Fulfill, unchanging, changed, and astonished. Fulfill, unchanging, changed, and astonished. Jesus begins his, his word. And this is a shift in the text where, where Jesus was talking to the people, but now he's, he switched to the first person. And he's telling them, blessed are you if you do. But now he shifts and he says, I've come. He states here that he himself is declaring himself as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. This is an amazing claim. This is an extraordinary thing to say. I have come not to abolish the law, he said. I've come to fulfill it. That's an audacious thing to say. I mean, that's an unbelievable. You're, this man is going to fulfill all of the law? All of the prophets? How can this happen? C.S. Lewis's assessment of Jesus was right. This man was either a liar, a lunatic, or the Son of God. He does not say he has come to do the law. Well, that would be something. He says so much more. Doing the law would mean perfect obedience. It would require a sinless life. And Jesus was that. He did obey all of the law. But he did not merely do the law. He fulfilled the law. Look at the text again. It does not just say the law. Jesus includes the prophets. You see, the most common usage of this word fulfill in the, in the Gospels, we see it over and over again in the Gospels. And it's, and it's coming up like this. It's used in this phrase, that it might be fulfilled. 
It describes Jesus over and over and over. And it's talking about how Jesus fulfills the prophecies of the Old Testament. You see, all of these predictions about the coming Messiah were given so that when he came, we would know it. The prophets were describing the Messiah very specifically. We don't have time. Do not take my word for it, but the Old Testament, the Old Testament gives us over 300 prophecies, descriptions of the Messiah, hundreds and hundreds of years before he comes, describing his, his, his birth, his death, what he would do. Jesus fulfilled them all. What else? Jesus fulfilled, fulfilled the doctrinal teachings of the law. And that he brought full revelation. Jesus fulfilled the prophecies. Jesus fulfilled the moral and legal demands of the law. And that he obeyed them. And he reinterpreted them in their truth. Jesus fulfilled the moral law. He fulfilled the ceremonial law. What else did Jesus fulfill? You see, he fulfilled the role of prophet he fulfilled the role of priest. He fulfilled the role of king. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. All these things were in Scripture to point to the Messiah. Do you remember, remember Jesus that after the resurrection, there's this account when he, he comes with a group of the disciples after, after his crucifixion. And these, these disciples are kind of lost. They're, they're sprawling in their minds. They're like, well, we were following Jesus, but now he's been crucified. And Jesus comes alongside them. And they don't know it's Jesus. Luke 24. And it says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. You see, implicitly, explicitly, the Old Testament is about Jesus. I mean, if, you, if we talked about it, we could go through the whole Old Testament. In Genesis, Jesus is the ram at the Abraham's altar. In Exodus, he's the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he is the high priest and the sacrifice. In Ruth, he's our kinsman redeemer. In Ezra, he's our faithful scribe. In Nehemiah, He's the rebuilder of that which is broken. You see, our Savior is in the pages, in and out, all over. He's the red thread going through the Old Testament. He fulfills this. We need to go on. Jesus' words get even more staggering. Verse 18. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not I owe it and not a dot will pass from the law until it's accomplished. Keyword number two is unchanging. You might think, you know, there, there's no way, there's no way something written 2,000, 3,000 years ago could be accurately preserved to this day without error. I mean, that, that is not humanly possible. You know what? I agree. 
for the entirety of the Bible to be preserved without any errors, without just written on ink on paper made out of reeds, over all that time of history and the turmoil of history, destruction, nations coming and going, persecution, it would take a miracle for that to happen. And yet, friends, that is what I'm holding in my hand. See, Jesus said this 2,000 years ago, and I mean, he could say that then, and we'd say, well, that's pretty impressive, but 2,000 years later, it stands true. And according to this verse, it will stand true until the heavens and earth pass away, until everything is fulfilled. It's a fulfillment of Jesus' promise. Friends, it's absolutely staggering to look at the evidence for the preservation of the word of God. Again, don't take my word for it. Look at the evidence yourself. The Bible's, how it has been preserved is amazing. Even through over and over in history, it's been banned, it's been burned, it's been destroyed, it's been mocked. It still stands. And that's saying nothing of the extraordinary weaving of themes that go over decades and centuries from different cultures and times. Jesus says this, it will not pass away. It's why the first item on the statement of our faith for our church says this, we believe the Holy Scriptures of the Old Testament and the New Testament are the inerrant in their original text, inspired and infallible word of God, and that God's word is the final authority for faith and life. You see, this is where it all stands. If we don't have this, friends, then we're left up with basically our imagination. God's word is trustworthy. That's what God's people have believed throughout all of history. You know, that's what Jesus believed. Take him at his word. People who say, you know what, I I like Jesus. I believe in Jesus, but I I don't really believe the Bible. Hmm. I think there's a mistake there. I think what they mean to say is I like the version of Jesus that I made up. Because the Jesus of Scripture held to the word of God. He fulfilled the word of God. And yet, sadly, today, there's so many. There's churches that do not hold to this. And the fruit, the fruit, of course, will be bad. It always will be bad. We need to go on. Verse 18. Changed. Jesus says, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great. Verse 18, is a, it's a rebuke. It's a rebuke to the Jews of Jesus' time who diminished and diluted God's commandments. The scribes and the Pharisees, with their teaching, their traditions, had basically rewritten the law. This is also a rebuke to any of us who take God's word and we set it aside and we say, well, 
I think otherwise. Very simply, those who are born again will have a deep desire to do the will of God, to know God, to walk with him. This is a key characteristic of all of God's children. They want to be like Jesus. The key difference is that doing God's commands is not for salvation, but it's because they are saved. Of course, we will do God's will imperfectly. But to want to glorify God with our lives, that is what the fruit of the Spirit is. As we see in the following verses, Jesus is going to reprove the the idea of religion. Again, something that is on the exterior, but we'll save that for next week. Because God's always been focused on the heart. That's what God really cares about. It's so easy for us to focus on the outside, right? What others are going to think of me, how others see of me, that doesn't matter. Friends, I, I hope you live your life for an audience of one. I hope who you are when no one else is around is, wait, I am standing and living before God. The conclusion of this text is not just to say we profess, profess something, teach something. The doing comes before the teaching. That is what the grace of God does in our lives. Last point. Astonished, verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. You know, if ever Jesus said something that should make people gasp and grab our attention, here's one of those statements. Quite frankly, there's quite a few in Scripture. You know, his words make one of those, I don't know, like a record scratch moment. You just stop. Wait, did he just say what I thought he said? We should read it again. He says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus could not be speaking more clearly. And you know what he does? He names the most holy and well-thought-of people in society at that time. The people, they say, well, those are the holy people. Those are the, those are the people that know God, who walk with God. He says, if your righteousness does not exceed theirs. He doesn't even say match. He doesn't say, you've got to be as good as the Pharisees. Why does he say that? Because if somebody could live a perfect life, friends, that would not make them righteous. That would make them morally neutral, right? They would just be at zero. Righteousness is a whole other thing. But of course, the Pharisees were like you and me. They sinned. They had fallen short of God's righteousness. 
Jesus drops a bomb here. He says, no, if, if you want to spend eternity with God, you need a righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees and the scribes. Do you remember this? Jesus talking to the most religious person of the day in John chapter 3, this guy named Nicodemus. He turns to Nicodemus and says, Nicodemus, listen, unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. You need a spiritual birth. You need to be born again. How does that happen? Well, go back to what Jesus said in verse 3. The, the Beatitudes, this process, it describes what salvation is, what happens. It starts when someone is poor in spirit, when they realize they are spiritually bankrupt. It happens when someone realizes, look, I have no righteousness. Before God, I am, I, I'm guilty. God says that person's blessed. It turns to mourning, a repentance. That repentance produces a meekness and it starts to grow the fruit of righteousness as someone believes in Christ, saying, I need his righteousness over my own. You see, this is what God does by his death on the cross. He died to make us the righteousness of God in him. But friends, I think it's a good thing to ask, is this talking about positional righteousness? That is, our standing before God in Christ, what God does for everybody who trusts it, those people are, the word of God declares, positionally righteous. He's made us the righteousness of God in him, God's word says. That's our position. How about practical righteousness? Well, we are here and now as we live. Is Jesus talking about practical or positional? Well, God desires both. God demands both. In fact, God is worthy of both. It's so extraordinary to grasp. But Christ chose to fulfill all the law. He did this so that we could be made the righteousness of God in him. What is Jesus saying to these people? The righteousness that you do, the best of your works, the very, very, all your efforts, it's not enough. We need to be born again. You see, the law, the purpose of the law was to point us to Christ. It was not a, a to-do list, and if I do enough of this, I can get to heaven. I heard a story recently about a, about a man who was a thief. Well, he wasn't born a thief, of course. But he started stealing things early and young, mixed with wrong people. All of a sudden, he finds himself in prison as a thief. He spends years in prison. And he's known by others, and he knows himself, I, I am a thief. But someone in, the, in, the, in prison said, look, you need to you find a church when you, when you get out. So his time was up in prison. And he gets out and he, he finds a church. And he goes into the church and, of course, he feels like he doesn't want to get close to people. And as he's walking through the entry of the church, he looks over on the wall. And on the wall there are the Ten Commandments. 
the Ten Commandments, he had heard those, he'd read, but there's one that just glowed on the wall. Number eight, you shall not steal. And the conviction just overwhelmed him. That's who I am. I'm a thief. And he kept going to the church and he's hearing the word of God and he's, he's hearing about Jesus who came and died for himself. But every time he goes through the entryway, he sees that and that's all he sees on the commandments. You shall not steal. It's what I am. I'm a thief. And week after week he goes by and he sees that. And at the same time though, he's hearing the gospel. And he's realizing that Jesus went to the cross for him. And one day as he's going through the foyer, he looks over and again he sees the Ten Commandments. And again he sees number eight. You shall not steal. But this time, this time it is not condemnation he feels. It is not the prohibition of the law of God's thunder. He sees the law through the grace of God, through what Jesus Christ has done. And this is now not a prohibition, not a commandment that he has broken. It is an invitation. You shall no longer steal. Why? Because you are my child. Because those who trust in Christ have a new identity. How about you? Maybe it's not a thief. Maybe it's a liar, an adulterer, a coveter. We identify ourselves as that which is broken, that by which has defiled us. You see, God offers in Christ, he fulfilled the law so that we could be the righteousness of God in him. He wants our identity to not be a thief, not a sinner, but his child. Let's thank him. Let's pray. Our Father in God, we thank you for your goodness and your grace. We ask God you would help us to believe. We ask God that you would help us to embrace. God, we we ask that you would make us righteous from the inside out. We pray, God, that we would, above all, want to glorify you. We pray, God, that we could have that joyful understanding and reality that those who save their lives will lose it, but those who lose their life for my sake shall find it. God, thank you that you fulfilled everything. God, thank you for your great grace. We give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, it's the first Sunday of the month, and on Sundays, the first Sunday.